Welcome everybody to episode 6 of Room of Requirement uh, I've been instructed by our listeners that we need to introduce ourselves And who we are and what we do and why we're qualified <laughs> So I'm, I'm Miracle Jones and I'm not qualified You're talking about anything, I'm just a fiction writer uh, My name is Kamalesh Rao uh, and I am nobody Like We are two people who uh, have a pol- politics podcast and I believe there are absolutely no requirements to have this. <laughs> so, thus, we are, since it is the uh, logic of outsider candidates, the less qualified you are, the more qualified you are. So. And to be fair, we are coming to you from Jackson Heights, which is the most diverse neighborhood on planet Earth. Yes. According to some metrics. Yeah. And uh, the particular section we live in is heavily Muslim, and so, you know. Pretty much under attack by the world today. Right. (laughs) We will get into all of that, but uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, We now have a Reddit subreddit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you go to our slash room of requirement, you can weigh in with links or tell us we're shitheads or yeah, uh, perform, you know, me magic against us or yeah. feel free to send us hate mail or death threats. We've, we've heard it all before. <laughs> we're impervious. <laughs> we're impervious. Yeah. So uh, this podcast is a podcast for both soul care, soul care and resistance. Resistance. So uh, we'd like to start the podcast with talking a little bit about how we've been taking care of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just want to take a step back for people who haven't listened to all the podcast. Originally, in my mind, uh, I started the podcast with Miracle Jones in order to walk him back from the ledge <laughs> in the wake of the election. Uh, this week, I think he's going to have to walk me back from the ledge. Um, I just, uh, I mean, in terms of just basic care, exercise, food, all of that, uh, squared away, but I would have to say that like uh, the stress and the sleeping well and all those metrics uh, seem to have gone awry, and it is largely political. Like uh, so you political, really feel it. yeah, the political news really hit me hard this week. So like it's been a little rough. Um, so uh, definitely trying to um, keep it together, and I think I am. But it has been a rough week, and it is I think again basically because of the political news. It's, just, yeah. it's hard not to take it personally. It's hard not to take the news and what's coming out of the administration in a way that colors your worldview. And it's just not hard, it's hard not to have a, a much more pessimistic outlook on life with that kind of with the kind of shit that's raining off down upon us, right? <laughs> Have you been sleeping okay? Or, I mean, yeah. So this was a, a good question. Like, uh, I mean, so I, I mean, the past few nights I haven't been sleeping super well. I'm not yeah. sleeping poorly, um, but that's usually one of the metrics. Like, if I'm up at like six a.m. and not feeling like completely refreshed, like I'm like, oh, okay, well something's wrong, yeah. um, and I can feel it. Um, certainly, like I've just been more restless. I've been more distracted. Um, and I guess the question is, I mean, you go through this a fair amount. Like, yeah. I mean, I, well, I'm like mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Like, I'm like a really well, high you, functioning mentally ill person. Well, how, how do you deal with it? Like, I mean, even even you have ups and downs. So, like, when you feel like you're real, yeah. When you feel like you're in a particular down part of the cycle, what do you do? What do you do to like bring yourself back up? What do I do to bring myself back up? Because I need that advice right now. So, yeah. I try to hang out with people. Yeah. But just like that's so key. Just like like the opposite of fascism is not socialism. Yeah. It is community. <laughs> yeah. I, I go out 
and I'm just around people. Right. And I look at them, and whether I'm talking to them, I just feel that sort of hum of like, yeah. humanity, and that makes me feel better. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's great advice. That's, that's one thing. Uh, two, gotta sleep. Yeah. It doesn't matter how, like, you got to, like, don't hang out in your bed. Right. You know, don't spend too long trying to sleep, like, get up and do things, and then try, you know, read yeah. fiction. I actually, <laughs> I actually took a little piece of your advice, and I started going through the Harry Potter cycle. Oh, sure. And so, um, and it, in some ways it's charming, um, but, like, I, I'm in book three right now. Yeah. And I found, even in the middle of the week, like, it was, it was too anxiety-inducing. <laughs> Like, so this is Harry Potter. Yeah. I've seen the outcome, and I'm like, this is stressful. And I always think about the saying, like, we are all equal to our problems. Yeah. Which doesn't necessarily mean that we can always overcome our problems. Hmm. What it means to me is that when things are horrifyingly shitty and just, like, from all directions they suck and there's no way out, and maybe you don't, but maybe it overtakes you, uh, it's like a compliment from the universe. Saying, like, uh, yeah. this is what you are equal to. Like, uh, this amount of horrible bullshit is what your level is. Okay. Which okay. I, I always think, you know, so when things are terrible and catastrophic, I always think it is like, all right, well, you know, I'm perceiving this much of reality and it's horrifying me, but that is what I'm equal to. That is, like, this level, and that is in some ways, like, a gift. Like, okay. Alright, I will try to take it as that. How have you been this week? Uh, I've actually been pretty good this week. I think that's like the way I, I am. Like, yeah, okay. The worst things to get. Like, I had a great dream. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this dream because it's political in nature. Okay, okay. Like, so, Harry Reid came to me in a dream. <laughs> of course he did. And tried to convince me to become a Mormon. And I was like, Harry Reid, I don't believe in anything. And he was like, that's why you should become a Mormon. <laughs> that's where political, spiritual power is in America. Okay. And we need more, more Mormons, Mormon. more leftist Mormons. I was like, I can't do it, Harry Reid. So, but it was a really good dream. We hung out. We like, and we watched a basketball game. Yeah. And it was it was all in the bleachers, you know, like an episode of Highway to Heaven. <laughs> so soothing. It's so very soothing. And I want to I want to thank you for for being a really good friend and getting me out to the gym, <laughs> kicking your ass a little. Yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. That's been really helpful yeah. too. I've been running every day, and it's been tiring me out enough, and just giving yeah. me like a, a way to focus my extra. Uh, thinking more tactically, I think this week uh, one of the things I did was I, I started. I just took breaks from Twitter. Yeah, like that's oh, super shit, yeah. important. I don't have. A, I don't have a phone. That's another thing. Yeah, you don't have a phone. I don't right? have a phone. Yeah, yeah. so I, I like twelve hour or sixteen hour breaks just from Twitter, just not to like, just not to be obsessed with the news and, yeah. and try and keep up with the crawl, whatever stupid people are reacting to it in stupid ways. Like it's just really hard to kind of continue to try to keep up on the news and at the same time create some sort of sane filter for yourself. It's cruel. Yeah. The news is cruel. Yeah, it's and rough. Yeah. Um, so it's... I, um, I mean, I think Twitter's a passing fad. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I was listening to something uh, about, uh, I think it may be NPR, about uh, civil rights, and they were talking, everyone thinks about civil rights as marches, but one or two of the uh, participants said, when they look back, they think of civil rights as meetings. They mm. just met. Yeah. And they met every, I think, weekend or morning at mm. 6 a.m. And they just tried to hash out a consensus before they started to march or protest or engage in acts of civil disobedience. Yeah. So meeting is really important. And maybe it goes back to what you said. The opposite of fascism is community. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm reading Churchill's memoirs right yeah. now. Yeah. 
And what's interesting to me is the way World War II was won was just a series of elaborately courteous bureaucratic emails. <laughs> I don't think they were emails at the time. Letters, maybe? Sure, memos. <laughs> but, you know, just to everybody he could think of, you know? And, like, he'd just wake up in the morning, put on, like, a velour tracksuit. And just, like... I, I, think you're, I think you're retconning history. No, no, literally. He had, had like, a velour tracksuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Imperial War Museum, you can see it. It's like a onesie. It's like made of velour. It's like maroon. That's and amazing. He would, I had no start, idea. he would start drinking and then just like me, because he was a huge alcoholic, yeah. and then just like write memos to his generals, to like people they wanted alliances with, just like anybody. Like, okay. dear sir, <laughs> would you like to help me fight fascism? He invented the, you know, map room, the idea of the map room. So oh, he would okay. just go into like and just play the board game of World War Two. It was wow. like the smartest people he could come up with. And you don't have to go out there and like fight people in the street. You yeah. just need to strengthen the bonds you already have. Right. With the people you already love. Yeah. I think this is a good segue to politics. Yeah. Politics, it is yeah. a lot coming down. Um, and first story is immigration, right? Yeah. yeah I think that's the biggest story. It's, it's a, I think it, it speaks volumes to where the administration would like to go. Uh, and it's obviously a, a cause that's close to my own heart. It's something that I take, I guess, particularly personally. Um, like any person who isn't Native American. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, um, it's well, a lot of English people came over, not as refugees, just to, like, kill and make money. Sure. And to be fair, I mean, yeah. most people came, at least till the latter half, like, yeah. of that mission, yeah. a lot of people came over to this world and, uh, or this part of the world and to make money, so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the immigration issue. But just to sum up the news, but um, Trump, without consulting a lot of people on the congressional side of things, uh, he puts out an executive order, effectively a travel ban on refugees from seven key countries. Uh, they're all Muslim majority. Uh, they are particularly. Uh, they're all in the Middle East, and there's. They all face, in one way or another, real issues with terrorism. Um, so not only a refugee ban, but apparently rescinding visas. So I think the latest news is that up to 60,000 visas are going to be affected. So that's quite a lot from uh, countries that have troubles of their own. Um, first and the most important thing to argue is how we feel about immigration, right? And I think in my world, immigration is the lifeblood of this country yeah. uh, for a lot of reasons. It's not, to me, we would have taken a million Syrian refugees yeah. to keep those Syrian refugees from breaking up the bonds of the EU. Like, strategically, that we are better at assimilating uh, far better than anybody in the world. That's like other a, than the Canadians. Maybe, well, yeah, but the Canadians are, you know, they, they just don't have the places from the, you know, like, yeah. they've got a few cities, and we can spread that shit around. A million new people in America, that improves our tax base, you know. Right, and, I, and, and there's something that, for some reason, the administration and maybe even a good part of what is active in the Republican Party right now isn't addressing the fact that we are a nation that prides itself on being a nation of immigrants, that we welcome people who are willing to come to our country and strive and try to work hard and try to improve themselves uh, and the country benefits from that kind of energy and enthusiasm and optimism uh, and hard work and uh, that is something that is deep in the American ethos uh, and for some reason the administration just isn't willing to acknowledge that and we have a very stridently anti-immigrant policymakers taking hold of policy at this point and mm -hmm. Again, there are a number of things to talk about. One is is sort of a violation of basic ethos. Mm -hmm. Two is a, a trampling of basic 
legislative processes, right? So it's yeah. not clear um, whether or not Trump even has uh, the legal right to do so. So um, he certainly has a legal right to intercede with how policy is conducted towards refugees. And the right is, is actually correct in the sense that Obama did something slightly analogous when he did ban refugees from Iraq for a while, for six months. The way that Trump undertook this is, is however, breathtaking and, and chaotic. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about maybe that's deliberate on his part. Yeah. But uh, whether or not he had the legal right to ban visas, it's not really clear because it's certainly up to Congress to make laws about immigration and citizenship. Um, and an executive order can't, as far as I understand the legal issue, it is in Congress's gift to determine what makes citizenship. So you could, Congress could enact this law mm -hmm. um, if they wanted to say we're going to ban visas or we're going to put in a travel ban. But it has to go through Congress, and part of the virtue of that is that it's no, it's not one person or a committee of three's uh, edict. It is a law that gets undertaken with public debate. And that's important, and I think, that, again, these are the institutions of American democracy. We can debate all you want about policy, but the institutions of democracy feel like they're very much under assault. There is something that feels illegal, what he did with, yeah. with visas. There is something that feels legal, but bad policy, and also a bad, uh, bad idea, uh, uh, basically a break with how America thinks of itself in the world, right? Like, it is a fundamental philosophy of America being open to uh, refugees and also people who want to come to this country. Um, so the idea that we are completely throwing up borders in a country that prided itself on being, at least in part, a country that cherished it somewhat open borders is heartbreaking and it is mm -hmm. again a radical departure away from how we see ourselves and whether it's the spirit of america or not it's certainly the spirit of fucking new york and this guy this queen's guy you know yeah, is I mean, betraying his entire city yeah absolutely yeah. like to bring politics a little bit more local queens is so diverse it's absurd we've talked about it yeah. it's ludicrously diverse this is a man who has to know this yeah but instead he comes off and he continues to hug these policies yeah. of a soft white nationalism? Well, I mean, that's in my darker moments, I walk around in this like kind of idyllic place where everybody gets along, and I'm like, this is what the world would be like without white Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a sign, um, I think it's, an, uh, so it's either in Hindi or Punjabi, but, um, so, but it is for uh, Punjabi Protestants. And the services would actually be in Punjabi, sure, yeah. which is and there's a lot of South Koreans here too. Sure, Koreans, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Protestants. Uh, you, every once in a while, the people be people here like recruiting or handing out pamphlets or yelling at people in Diversity Plaza. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I, mean, I mean that there. Are, I mean, it is a merry-go-round of <laughs> ethnicities who are preaching the word. It's true. Yeah, it's, they're drowned out. Right. right. Just like I can't do it. I'm, right. I mean, there are like 14 different colors and sects of uh, preaching the gospel at any given time. And neighborhood. Um, so I guess even from a security point of view, this is a terrible oh, idea. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. yeah, it is. It was poorly mm -hmm. executed. Um, it, we don't have infinite resources to throw at our borders. And the idea that you are inviting this much chaos into what is a, a normally a routine procedure at our borders means you're going to tie up things in terms of, of, of legal proceedings. And you're giving a lot of power to on the ground to individual 
uh, border guards or um, or immigration officers, and that's not in keeping with the rule of law, right? We have rules of laws. It's not up to everyone to decide. Every immigration office is in its own court, right? The way they have to interpret the laws, it should be very clear. Again, we are a society that embraces the rule of law. So, um, but uh, the security issue in it itself. Is a hard thing to think about, right? Like, I mean, and this is where I, I, mean, I guess we can talk about it. But I actually think the Democrats should be like, this is not a way to keep us secure. This well, is, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, the people who are fighting ISIS right now are Iraqis with you know a Kurdish and Turkish coalition right. in Mosul. You know, what incentive do they have now to help us out if you know we have decided to clamp down we're, on? We're clearly know, taking yeah. away incentive. Yeah. Uh, and two, let's say that I'm worried about refugees coming into the U.S. And I think there's a legitimate worry. Yeah. Certainly ISIS has talking, talked about weaponizing refugees, and that sure. is something we should talk about. But the idea here is that whether or not you target these countries and you ban their refugees, whether that's good policy or not, I actually think that in one way, if you wanted to ban refugees, I think if you started to make up the list, of course Iraq and Iran um, and Syria would be on it, but high up on that list has got to be Pakistan, has to be Saudi Arabia, has to be Belgium. <laughs> and, and so, and so, if you were really concerned, uh, Belgium would have to be certainly in the top five or top ten countries. And uh, banning people with visas; these are people who have gone through a vetting process. And I would, and we're pretending that the refugees don't have a very stringent vet, vetting process, which they do. Like yeah, we already we're pretending have, that they're not women and children. Honestly. Right, like, right. That's who they are. So. Right. Um, so I think, from a security point of view, if you really want to be honest, then you you have to cast the net wider in some ways. And at the same time, you have to rely on the fact that you have erected all these barriers for visas, like. The idea about a, a visa and a security system are built around filtering out people through the through the visa process is an important one. Uh, it's how we again set, set up a system of laws for immigration. Um, during all this kind of craziness, I actually sat down and I, uh, this is what I do because I'm a data scientist. I actually started to like compile a list of um, of the terrorist attacks in the U.S. over the past four or five years. Uh, and so I started doing it, and of course it's in a spreadsheet, and I started doing analysis on it. And the country, or uh, and the country of origin of of like the vast majority of the people, United States, the United States, yeah. they're citizens. Yeah. They're citizens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I mean, there are there are people who come in from Somalia. There are one or two attacks in the past five years that you know they are Somali immigrants. I don't think that's wrong. For, uh, especially if you if you don't have a lot of interaction with you know just a run of the mill Somali immigrant, if you're just like okay, well, Somali immigrants seem to be a problem. That's what I see on the news. I don't have any other interaction. Okay, if you want to think about increasing your vetting process for Somali immigrants, I think that's legitimate. I don't. I, I think the Democrats have to come up with a better response. Um, but there's even even as purely political theater, just to be like, okay, well, let's come up with sane, reasonable vetting processes that um, actually ad address some of our security concerns, rather than we're going to name seven countries, all which seem to be bad countries, but are probably not where, uh, are not probably the not top five. Again, I think Belgium is in the top five. Like, I mean, <laughs> that is effectively every attack in Europe. They seem to filter through Belgium, right? And there is a there's. I'm almost guaranteeing you there's a, a very well-connected hub of of ISIL or ISIS sympathizers in Belgium somewhere. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's 
it seems very arbitrary and even the most hawkish security advocate has to say that this is a bad policy because effectively we're creating chaos on our own borders rather than trying to come up with an idea of how to sanely filter in people. Yeah, but what it seems to be is just an attempt to isolate us, just to piss off the world against us in order to harden up Trump's support and also make the rest of the world start to form up against the United States to separate us from our natural allies in order to keep the people here uh, from having that globalist way of thinking. Yeah, and this segues into like I think is an what I think is a really important story or a through line in the Trump administration is chaos is the strategy, mm-hmm. right? So on one hand, you're right. We are trying to separate ourselves internationally or draw a line in the sand, um, it has a really important strategic kind of reverberation on the domestic scene. So there are people close to Trump who are helping him guide policy who think that any chaos is good. So chaos at the airports is good. And it is is a, a risky strategy on their part. And I think it fundamentally, it is not what people want in the end from a president, right? I think if you are chaotic while you don't have Congress quite online and you don't have your cabinet, I think they'll let it slide. But if chaos is the story every week, 18 months from now, people will be well past exhausted. Yeah. Um, There's the old KGB motto, chaos is come. If you have a goal, you're able to implement it without them being able to respond or get enough people together to agree on what reality is in order to thwart you. The CIA motto is pay somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) I think the idea that that domestic policy in part is driven by this aesthetic of chaos, that that's somehow what you want to see because it indicates activity, it also pisses off people, it divides them, that there is a very uh, divide and conquer strategy. I think in a lot of politics, especially in in an age as partisan as ours, but it's flabbergasting. But I I have a theory behind it. What's your your theory? Um, So I actually think that uh, Steve Bannon and, and the people around him uh, were way influenced by punk, right? There's something there's something about railing against the institution where throwing bombs is uh, valid in and of itself. And it feels like a real punk aesthetic. Like you are, you do not know how to cooperate with an establishment because the establishment is so corrupt. And in their world, the establishment is this liberal, elitist coterie, right? And our world, maybe as leftists, we think of it as, and I certainly, I think growing up in the South, I think of like uh, this character of a Republican racist uh, judge, right? Sure. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so, I mean, we more have, like car dealer. <laughs> but that anti-establishmentarian mentality feels very punk to me. So, I think that's going to be a hard transition when they have to actually work with Republicans who sooner or later are going to have an agenda that may be somewhat orthogonal to the agenda right now. So, of the administration. Yes, uh, Republicans are definitely far more goth. <laughs> so what else What else politically are you thinking about? Uh, I mean, we talk also about the Supreme Court nominee. So, Gorsuch. Uh, Gorsuch. So for the Republicans, they made a very key kind of easy call, right? Someone yeah. who is very conservative. Uh, Episcopalian. Very qualified. That 
that's that matters. Like I know you're like religion doesn't matter, but the Supreme Court that's where that's that's the one place where Catholics, Catholics and Jews yes. have power. Yeah, Catholics and Jews. Yeah. You know, we had one Catholic president. He was murdered pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, we got Biden up there, and then no Jews. You know, Lieberman almost. You know, yeah. but no Jews. Sanders, but that's the Supreme Court. That's the place where you know. So what did you think of this? I mean, to me, like it's it's very like it's a it's a smart and good play. An almost unimpeachable yeah. sponsorship, yeah. Um, and so this opens the question of how Democrats should take this on. How mm-hmm. how do they confront this option? Because it is again, it's a very smart play. I think, and his credentials are certainly making well qualified to be a Supreme yeah. Court justice. Um, so what is so the questions are whether how does the, how do the Democrats challenge this if they choose to do so, and then two. Uh, what does it mean, I think, in terms of thinking about a strategy for uh, legal philosophy, right? So this is one of the things that if you listen to conservatives, they have an agenda. They have a vision for how they want the courts to look. Yeah. And the left is like, are you abortion? Are you pro or anti-abortion? Yeah. And that's it. That is, that is the shallowness. And to me, like, it's really interesting to see that difference because for whatever stereotypes we have about Republicans being less educated and, and liberals being more educated, I think the debate on our side in terms of where should the courts go, I think it seems a little shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, There's so. something I think about. You don't have to be a lawyer to be a judge. We oh, should really? just be applying to be judges everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just glad it's not Ted Cruz or Ben Stein or... <laughs> ben Stein? <laughs> sure. Just like, I'm glad it's not a clown pick. Right. Well, so this is interesting because, I, you know, there's talk about how, how aesthetically driven mm-hmm. Trump is. And uh, Gorsuch fits the he he's a telegenic guy like oh, I th- yeah. yeah so like I, I wonder if they were he like he just looked at a like it was like judging a beauty contest he's like yeah, yeah. that's the best looking that's the guy I want do you think John Roberts is is, is jealous <laughs> <I'm a little laughs> yeah, he looks yeah. like he could be sheriff of a town in the Midwest yeah. in the eighteen seventies. You know, he's a success, which Trump is not. He's not a he's not a <laughs> mediocrity full of resentment. Right. And I think to the extent that he puts these guys in back to the punk power. theory. Mediocrity's yeah. full of <laughs> resentment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there that I feel like that is a punk aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. And so this is somebody who is he he has no incentive to be loyal to Trump once he's in. Right. And I think place. that the I think what it means to be a conservative, especially during the era of Obama, is that you were very skeptical about federal overreach. Yeah. And that is good for a conservative theory on jurisprudence, but bad if you are in the executive office as an activist Republican, or quote-unquote Republican, right? Yeah. So, like, I wonder how much this is going to weigh. Like, I wonder if, if there are going to be cases that come up in the in, in the not-too-distant future that really challenge Trump's executive authority. I think this is a it's an interesting nominee. But what do you think the strategy should be? I think confirm him tomorrow. I think just like fuck it. I agree. I 100 yeah. agree. You are not going to look good being like I'm going to walk out of this. You just be like, hey, you know what? You got us. I'm sorry we didn't. We couldn't get Merrick through. But like you know, hey, uh, his name will not go down in history, and um, you have this guy because he's it's a great nominee, right? Like I mean. No matter how conservative the judge is, if they're competent, yeah. uh, I think that's really important. And just one off the table, this is not what yeah. we should be fighting about. There's no way the you horrible fight. Horrible things right. to fight about. Real, real pressing issues. Right. And 
Yeah, I mean, back to the immigration issue, like, uh, you know, it's not clear that this actually hurt him, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't see how the Supreme Court nominee opposing that in any way helps us. Yeah, and the moment you confirm this guy, the party can start to separate. Right. Because it's off the table, they've got what they wanted. McConnell, Ryan, the the gray eminences of the GOP, right. they can start to fucking fight back against the against right. the excesses of, of Trump. So this is something uh, I wanted to talk to you about since we're talking about Supreme Court. That I wanted to just figure out what you think about it. There is a deep quasi-religion within the conservative wing of the Republican Party, and pretty much uh, I think a lot of Republicans line up against this, and they believe in originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. And that, again, the left doesn't have this debate, and I think well, that... Well, it is stupid. Right, but they believe it. Like, yeah, even very smart do. people... Yeah. This is an idea that what you have what you have from the Constitution is a, a dead document mm-hmm. that Designed has to be... to protect slavery. Right, right, right. From that, beginning to end. That's almost all it is. Right, right. And so it is a dead document that has to be historically interpreted um, and and what they wrote at that time is the best way to guide our legal or our rather our legislative or governing process is to historically interpret what the founders of the Constitution meant at the time that they were writing it. Yeah. And it's an asinine philosophy. Oh, it's insane. It's, yeah. it's a religion. But it, it is, it's it, a metaphysics. But it yeah. is a, to a person yeah. what most people who think about the Constitution on the right think they yeah, think it's about cosplay. It. It's like I'm gonna put. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. It's, I'm gonna put know, on a powdered reenactment society. Right. You know. The only argument I can have for it is that if you if you walk away from a strict textualism, then you have every. Then you have a lot. You can have a lot of like woolly interpretations of what the Constitution can mean. Right. You can have a lot of like. Oh, you know, they wanted us to love everyone. Like I can see like a character of liberalism coming out of like. Okay, well, if you're not if you're not wedded to this document. As it is, as as a dead document, then any judge is effectively a legislator, yeah. and I think that's a character argument. Um, but I think what it effectively means is that if you interpret the Constitution in a way that I don't like, I am going to point to the original text. Yeah. Um, and I, there is something about that notion that the original text, as it was written, mm-hmm. is sacred, and that they don't, and the founders themselves didn't uh, imagine this to be something that was ever going to change. Yes. And I think that's dead raw. Yeah. Like, from a historical perspective, the Constitution was written to be a living document that was amended through time, yeah. and was con- reinterpreted by every generation. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand how anyone can look at how the founders created this document as anything other than, hey, this is a first draft, go forth my ensuing generations and continue to interpret the rule of law based on these guidelines. I think the problem was the first four presidents were all people who had had some participation in drafting it. In which case they were it wasn't about, you know, they were putting people in these Supreme Court positions and being like, you have to interpret it like I thought. You well, know? Okay, and they, had, they pushed back, you know, it's like, listen, that is what I was thinking when I wrote these words. <laughs> so you actually do have to think about what I, I was thinking. Even if that's and true. it became a, a tradition. Yeah, even if it's true, the, the next, after number four, yeah. right, I, I mean, basically after Monroe, like, I mean, I think it's up to people to interpret. And plus, on top of that, like, yeah. I think John Marshall is the one who said, like, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna come did up a power with, grab. Yeah, 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 he did a power grab. Sure. But that's, that's, that's a 200-year-old story, right? I mean, even yeah. Andrew Jackson, and like was and he said I would interpret the constitution as I think he was a country lawyer yeah but like I think that he 
he read into it what he thought is was the spirit rather than the actual words, right? right? Um, and this goes back to a conservative philosophy, and I I'm, I am all about reaching across the aisle, and I and part of this podcast is me trying to think about different worldview, which yeah. is I think that there is something about a conservatism that is reluctant to embrace what is new, yeah. and I think that's very different from a liberal mindset. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, the more comfortable you are with filth, I think the more likely you are to be liberal. I think the difference is that the liberal, uh, a liberal way of thinking about it, about embracing the new and understanding that we live in a dynamic world, and every time we try to codify or freeze the past in a way that allows us to preserve it, I think it does complete disservice to our society, and and basically is you are forcing yourself to live in a. Uh, a zone of denial that says that the the world isn't changing around you, and I think that's dangerous. And I think part of this translates into how the conservatives think about the Constitution, yeah. and they just don't want things to change. And the truth yeah. is, it's a living document. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, the original, I, I just I have a very little sympathy, I think, for uh, being an originalist or a textualist mm-hmm. um, as a point of pride. I think, oh, yeah. yeah, and I, I think that's important. I think it's important that we are as a body politic. Uh, we are empowered to interpret the laws as we see fit, and we don't we don't rally around certain judicial viewpoints the way we have a couple of litmus tests that are pretty. Yeah, much I think shown. the Bill of Rights is what the left goes to. Yeah, when instead of the Constitution, they right. look at they look at you know the way that rights are derived yeah. and push civil rights as opposed to the yeah. framework of the Constitution. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about... Uh, yeah, I wanted to bring up something that I think is going to be really interesting that's going to happen yeah. next week, which is, like, the shadow world. Okay. There will be a debate on Obamacare between Sanders and Cruz. That that will be really therapeutic to watch, I guess, because that's, like, a, a war of ideas between two, you know... Failed presidential <laughs> candidates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that their qualification? I, I think their qualification is that they're, in some ways... Beloved by the most pure the faction, yeah, of the base, yeah. and they both, you know, Cruz represents Texas, which means he represents big medicine. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Houston's the, you know, and the insurance company. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sanders represents Vermont, which means yeah, yeah. represents failed socialism. <laughs> so the, 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 but I, I think it'll be very interesting because in like a bizarre world that matters right now. Like yeah. we, we will be a debate about Obamacare is like you know because that is what we should be doing. We should be debating. Nothing yeah. should have happened the past two weeks except administrative bullshit, and then we should be talking about Obamacare now. Right. Yeah. I think, and it's interesting because uh, uh, whatever executive orders have come from Trump have been relatively vague about Obamacare or the ACA and I think this is the Republicans confronting a really messy reality healthcare especially the way the US is trying to deal with it is hard and no one has a great solution no No party has the true approach because it's in some ways maybe even an insolvable problem right yeah yeah I mean it's unsolvable and it's changing and it's uh it's you're grafting it onto an already stupid system. Yeah. You know, that yeah. keeps millions of people employed. Yeah. And, you know, so... Anything else about politics, or do you want to go to uh, doubling down on defeat since we're already talking about the Democrats? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. Let's just move on. There are a couple of questions. How... Uh, the Democrats are responding to this onslaught of various Republican edicts or initiatives, right? You know, seeing people 
uh, trying to rally support at the actual airports because we live in New York, right? Yeah. And it's it's almost we a live in Queens. We live where the two airports. Yeah, are. yeah. So it's a really heartening kind of effort, and oh, I think it's and it yeah. plays and it plays well, I think, with the base of um, for the Democrats were already like you know a week ago was a women's a week prior to that was the women's march. So that kind of like outright civil protest, I think it plays really well to the base, but does it really move the needle in terms of the debate? So, uh, you know, there are a couple of polls out, and it's not really clear how um, the public is reacting. Yeah. Uh, but there is there is one incredible poll that says, you know, the Republicans haven't moved. They think that there was a fine policy, and the Democrats think it's a terrible policy yeah. uh, with, you know, let's say equal margins. I think that the margins are whatever. Uh, but no one really moved. Um, so there, there, it, there is also an argument that maybe the Trump uh, cabinet ends up looking really bad about this. Um, so I guess what would be, what do you think in general going forward are the principles uh, that Democrats should do, uh, should follow in order to mount a, an effective resistance? Because I think protests play to the base, yeah. but I don't think they communicate clearly how we can be a poli- how we can be a party that deserves to take power at some point. Yeah, well, I've, I've a two-pronged strategy to this that I've been thinking about. Yeah. Which is, one, we have a president that does something new, which is instead of the aggregate cruelty of political calculation, he engages in direct cruelty of personal attack, right? Yeah. There's always somebody new that he hates. Yeah. And the Democrats have to rally around whoever that person is on either side. Yeah. The personal person. And, you know, maybe give him a, maybe make a, I got fucked over by Trump gift basket. <laughs> or just like a GoFundMe for everybody that he mentions personally. Yeah. Everybody that he attacks personally has to be lifted up on a pedestal and beloved by right. those of that's us. A, that's, a, that's an interesting strategy. It could backfire if he ends up attacking someone who ends up being really terrible. Yeah, but I mean, whatever. Like he's, the, the 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 way that they're being attacked is the problem. Yeah. Not that they're being attacked in the first place. Uh, like coming up with bullshit, stupid nicknames for people. That's new. That's like the president doing that. Yeah. That is just cruelty. Right. And you just can't. The, we have to make it so that every time he does that, the response is outsized of like an outpouring of love. Right. Right. So that there's no fear of this. So that yeah. the fear dissipates because people in his party, people in our party, people just like random citizens are terrible of the president personally yeah. attacking them and yeah. if it's like if it's the thing that like changes your life for the better like to be attacked by the president you know like, <laughs> you, you have a new house a new car right, like, right, right. thing that would change the strategy of the president for, as far as attacking people you know eliminate that that bullying tactic interesting right? my second prong is the shadow cabinet yeah is, to, is making sure that you have a a government, a po- yeah, a, a rational government that right. is addressing the needs. Of- no, that's and we should be a cabinet that says, "Well, this is the smart policy." Um, yes, we are absolutely one hundred percent concerned about security, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you actually have to go. At least your vocabulary has to be a little bit more hawkish on security yeah, yeah. than the Republicans. Like, this is a shit show. How yeah. does a shit show help us become more secure? I mean, right, that's- and, right. And, yeah. a, and even and a policy that you can add, you can be both pro pro immigrant yeah. or pro immigration because I think if. And and still care about security, and you can do it in a better way. That as far as our our elected representatives, just to basically ignore Trump yeah. and to just say, here are what I what is what I would be doing. Right. Here are the you know policies of the Democratic Party on this, yeah. and organize like you know briefing yeah. about what they think a good right. response would be, and then you know. Right, but I think I think if you don't do the things that you like, if you don't send you know teams of lawyers to uh, airports, I think it, there's. 
it's clear that you're raising the political cost from Trump to do anything. Like, yeah. It's not a it's not a it's not a zero cost and uh, policy for him. And I think the idea is that without that show of resistance, then the administration will be encouraged to enact even more draconian. Oh no, absolutely. Rules it's it's, it's testing, legislation. It's poking, yeah, it's, it's totally testing is, to yeah. see where. So we have to resist upon multiple fronts. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, and just choosing who to deal with as well. Yeah. I think part of forming that shadow cabinet is ignoring Trump. Yeah. Say moving, you know, make, if you addressing your complaints to Paul Ryan or right. Mitch McConnell, just say, you know, you are not a ra- our executive is not rational. Right. You will no longer deal with him. He's calling the Senate Minority Leader fake tears, Chuck Schumer. Yeah. That is, he's not a rational person. Like. Well, right. And I think yeah. he can be smart and sly about it. Like, yeah. I mean, could bring up his quotes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, during uh, whatever his speech during Black History Month. Forever, yeah. and they will never be not funny, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really coming up in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I want you to use that phrase as much as possible because um, it's just ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, we can't buy Frederick Douglass a car. <laughs> I think about like a private tax burden as well. Right? Yeah, like we make sure that we have a direct like uh, debit from our accounts that goes right to the ACLU every yeah. month. We, you know, if the, if the government isn't going to collect taxes. Uh, to support programs that we need. We should make sure that we're funneling money uh, to the civil society programs that address the same needs. Right, absolutely. Just form a shadow, you know, federal government. The Planned plan Parenthood is the, you know, New York embassy in every state. Right. That's why the Republicans hate it so much. <laughs> so, you know, making more of that and being like, well, you know, you're not going to address the needs of your people. New York will. Right. You know? I think there's something about um, the, the, the marches and the protests, too, that I think it's an interesting strategy. But what I, I worry about is going down the road of the Tea Party, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, an activist base wants... Uh, there's, I think there's a lot of pressure even on your... Co- uh, I think in our federal level where people are like, I want you to resist, so I need you to resist uh, all the cabinet positions, and I need you to walk out of the cabinet nominees. And I don't know if that plays super well. I think it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you have to admit that you don't have power, but you continue to hold up, like, the basic procedures, right? I, I don't know. To me, that... Uh, I hate using this word, but the optics don't play out well. If you're yeah. going to walk out of a cabinet, you can vote down and you can grill, but you can't walk out. Like when you're a part of the government, you have you walk a, a line. And I yeah. think as supporters of the Democratic Party, we have to at least give them some yeah. leeway. We yeah. are we are the majority of the country, and we are definitely the majority of the country's tax base. Yeah. So we should act like it. We should just ignore yeah. the terrorism of right. You know, minority a, a minority party acting like they're in charge. Right. We are the majority party, mm-hmm. and the, our base is growing. Right. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I think the Women's March proves, and I think the protests at uh, uh, the airport proves that we have a strong, active base. And I think if you read uh, right-wing press, uh, they are not getting this the way that I think maybe the left didn't see the Tea Party coming. Uh, and they're dismissing the the activism that we've seen or the marches as just being, okay, well, this is their equivalent. These are just a bunch of uh, like loonies on the left. But I think the base is really, really energized right now. As far as uh, on right now, if, the, if you ask Republicans, they've counted us out. And I, mm-hmm. rightly so, I think, on a federal level. But I think Republicans have gotten caught. There's nothing coming from the administration that says, how are we going to continue to rule? There's some hope and dream of some, mm-hmm. let's say, soft racist <laughs> legacy of Steve Bannon. Yeah, right? Yeah, That's yeah. his strategy. Yeah. That's his long-term strategy, yeah. that we will convert the country over to being white, effectively. Or I Actually, I think Steve Bannon's policy is to... 
uh, unify white, somehow peel off some black, and then and then and then demonize brown. As a white a, person, he is not attractive enough to unify white. <laughs> Yeah, as the forward. wounds of the primary start to fade, yeah. it should have faded instantly. But as yeah. they start to fade, the uh, the left we have is a lot gone. of potential. Yeah, but yeah, the left is it was you know we were divided because we were so powerful. Right. Once we reunify again, it's going to be uh, the trick is going to be figuring out what to do with our power that has no outlet. So let me ask you this then. All right, and this is this is a question I wanted to ask you. What are you and I doing? <laughs> I mean, this podcast yeah. is kind of nothing. This is just therapy for us. Yeah, yeah. So what? What? And I think this is something. It's a good like, thing. What standard do we hold ourselves to? My wife actually asked me this. Yeah. Uh, so we we're talking about politics, and it's not her thing. And she's happy for me to do this podcast. Yeah. And, but she's like, get okay. you out of the house. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, okay. And I and I was talking to her about politics this week, and she's like, okay. So what are you doing about it? Yeah. And I mean, what? My wife is an intelligent woman. That's a great question. I don't yeah. have an answer, and I'm trying to kind of grope around for an answer. You ready to run for office here in Jackson Heights? <laughs> Jackson Heights. I'll back you as your fixer. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, uh, so I, you know, what are we doing actually? And so well, I'm an artist, so I'm good. I'm <laughs> unseen legislators of the world. That's Mary Shelley said. So what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know actually. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, there are a number of things I could do, um, and so I i don't know, I'm still groping around for an answer. The more and more I think about it, I think um, i think it's time to, to start the resistance blog, uh, the data science resistance oh, blog. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, I'll have to think about that, yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. I, I've already started collecting data, and I think there are interesting things I'd like to follow, and uh, yeah. Um, being an artist, in my mind, isn't, isn't, like, doesn't get you out of anything. Yeah, it gets you out of everything, it's great. <laughs> You know, I, I, I like to think of myself as the jewel that everyone else must protect, but maybe I shouldn't think of myself. That <laughs> <way>. <laughs> That's dumb. <laughs> no, I mean, like, artists are sensitive creatures. Uh, you know, yeah, if the world yeah. is in chaos, we don't produce. Wait, are, you, are, you, is, are you just, like, like a precious little snowflake that <laughs> just can't handle the world? And say, no, I can't at all. Trip yourself in this veneer of artist dreams? It's, it's very liberating. Like, at any moment, I could be done. You know? <laughs> Um, all right. Okay. So I'm not. I'm not buying the artist thing. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully, I will inspire you to take on some greater. Brain. Yeah, I think you you inspire me to like um, work harder at my job. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing wrong with working a regular job. Hey, I work too. <laughs> all right. Well, moving moving on. Yeah. Uh. So. Let's move on to our our fine segment outside the bubble. Yeah. Uh, so I, and you know, when we first started thinking about this podcast, I was already reading a fair amount of conservative press because I actually found it comforting. Yeah. Um, and I've already mentioned this blog, but I think it's not helpful for me to mention just sources. I should actually mention specific articles um, uh, going forward. And I, there are two podcasts that I thought were really good. Um, and, and so the one that I'm suggesting that people listen to is the Wall Street Journal has a podcast. It's a political podcast. It's called Potomac Watch. Um, and uh, they have one called President Trump's First Week. Um, and they look at it, and there's actually a follow-up the following week. It's also interesting to listen to. Um, but in this particular podcast, what comes out is that you have a very chaotic first week of president. Uh, of a presidency, and you have people who, in general, want to support him, who want to support a number of his initiatives, and are at, and are just 
warring within themselves. There's not like an argument around the table. It's like the fan, when the Phantom Menace came out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Everybody right. was like, oh, it's good. I love it. Right. And then you know, people are slowly like, what? This yeah. is actually, this kind of sucks. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so you can see uh, this is. Um, this is a, a particular base of the Republican Party. It's the pro-business base, but you can see them have huge misgivings just about the chaos in general. Mm-hmm. They don't like that, and I think that's, I think that's going to be true with business in general, oh, yeah. uh, or uh, they don't like the chaos. And certain policies that they're not on board with are being put into relief, right? Like, I mean, I think there are a lot of policies that are coming to the forefront. Um, the business is not comfortable with. It's interesting to see people who actually had strong arguments for the pro-Trump case being forced to argue within themselves, or not even argue, but also just forced to deal with the reality of what it means to have someone like Trump championing some of their causes. And to me, the past two weeks, even if it hasn't shifted um, any kind of uh, voter opinion in terms of what you think of people generally supporting Trump, like Trump supporters, I think the business community is having serious misgivings about him in these first two weeks. And to me, if you were thinking about strategy, if you had part someone who was a shadow cabinet minister in the Democratic Party being like, okay, well, we have a better solution, and it's yeah. not this chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy. That's an easy win. And I think, I think actually the business... Shadow cabinet should be a coalition government anyway. We yeah. should have conservatives then. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and to me, it, it, it's an honest debate. I, I, I will always give them, I think it's a partisan, but an honest debate in terms of the Wall Street Journal podcast. Um, and it is a little bit of a, a sounding room because they tend to agree with each other, but there are, this particular podcast really sort of uh, uh, makes clear that there are real misgivings about the Trump administration. And if you want to be optimistic and think about a strategy, I think, again, the business wing is going to be more and more out of love with the Trump administration uh, unless he's able to do some kind of miraculous things. Are they willing to break up the big banks and, <laughs> wait, hear me out, and Wall Street? <laughs> Since it's a good question. <laughs> Um, I, I wonder what if the Democratic Party tried to rally business up to its side, right? Yeah. What what those policies would look like? Because I think, in some ways, it's an awkward fit, but in some ways, it could be a decent fit. So, um, uh, yeah, I wonder what that would look like. But it is a strategy worth thinking about because the base of, of Republican supporters, um, in terms of Midwest. Uh, non-college educated uh, white people may not have been moved much by the immigration debacle, but certainly businesses being thrown into turmoil because mm-hmm. of it. Um, so, um, so he's going to have to try to swing, uh, swing something huge towards their way, or try to give them some huge gift in the next week or so to get them more on his side. Like, I think. I think last week, you know, that's America's Americans just aren't used to being global pariahs. Yeah. I think it's going to affect them. It's going to hurt them. And yeah. I think that goes doubly true for people in business. Yeah. Who have to travel and who's going to get endless shit. Uh, you know. Um, so that's my that's my suggestion. I yeah, that's a great suggestion. I will definitely listen to that. My suggestion for Outside the Bubble is a uh, website called Predict It. Are you familiar with this? No. So Predict It is a... Uh, uh, it's run out of New Zealand. And it's a betting website? It's a betting website okay. for political events. You can bet on anything. Yeah. Uh, you can bet on the number of times Donald Trump will tweet in a week. Okay. You, can, you can bet on uh, world elections, uh, American elections... 
uh, catastrophic events, whether, you know, cabinet secretaries will be confirmed or not, whether the next president will be a woman, you know, what the uh, television ratings will be for a given debate, uh, anything. Uh, But what I find interesting about it is... Uh, they have a comment section below yeah. each of the, uh, the the bets the bets that are up, and you know everybody obviously spends most of their time trying to like pump up their various yeah. bets in the comment sections. But that's where you will find the most like hardcore, insane Trump propaganda, right? Yeah. And it's interesting to see like if you're looking for like a place to 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 see it like in real time. You just yeah. like have never encountered a Trump supporter or like a. Or somebody yeah. who's like supporting Trump for the fun of it. Yeah, know? or or for the the, the the financial gain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which it, there's massive amounts of people making money off this shit and yeah. just like playing it up. And you know, it should be illegal, but it isn't. Like it's because we're not in New Zealand. It's it's uh, run by a university who's like doing a lot. It's okay. in, in in conjunction with this university, and you can't bet too much. You know, like, okay. you can only uh, spend like eight hundred dollars or something. But it's it's very fascinating. I, I think it's the ecosystem is interesting to see. You just right. see the way that language is used and the way people uh, argue with each other and just these like memes. Uh, yeah, can you give a uh, like a concrete example of what like you thought was interesting or fascinating or even something you learned? Well, I think it's interesting how quickly people identify with a temporary bet and just go all in on supporting some candidate or policy that they just have a small amount of money on. You know, and how hard they fight for this like small amount of to sell this like you know. Yeah. And I think it was illuminating during the election cycle, and now just like a lot of Trump's base are just these like bad faith like investors like trying to like pump up some like shit stock, which is Trump, you know, <laughs> in, order, in order to make a temporary cash out. Yeah. Just like fuck you, world. Like, yeah. Were there any good faith arguments? Uh, rarely. Uh, sometimes you know you'll see people weigh in with like a. I think this is likely to happen or whatever. Mainly on the because I mean you have to sell your position. You have to sell your position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but and mainly on on you know you saw you saw good faith more good faith discussion on like the left side when it was just like during the run up to the election when it was just like Sanders v Clinton. You'd have like long drawn out discussions of various policies and why that would create you know a win in Michigan or whatever. Okay. Uh, but that's all out the window now. Yeah. Now it's just all Trump all the time, you know. Yeah. It's, and it also like makes people, you know, if you're if you're betting on this tweets, which is the highest volume Twitter, okay, uh, the highest volume uh, market is like this tweets or whatever. Like the number of tweets, or number of tweets a week. Yeah. You know, you're on his Twitter page all the time. People are just like reading his tweets, you know, and and just like talking about him and like coming up, you know, like trying to figure out what he's going to tweet about next. <laughs> They're reading his like schedule, you know, yeah. like seeing who's having a meeting with, you know, it's like hoping for the next, you know, tweet or hoping or betting against it or whatever, yeah. hoping he's too like, you know, hoping he's going to get into a fight, you know. These are the only people in the world that what I'm trying to say is these are the people who are loving the chaos. Yeah. They love it because it creates this like world where you can, where the bets are. Yeah, it's a volatile world. It's a volatile world. And, yeah. mo- and you know, there's you can, money to be made. Money to be made on the giant swings yeah. that are, you know, happen every day in Trump land. Um, so should we talk about random shit? Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about history, which is a, obviously a very small topic. We can wind <laughs> this up in three minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that uh, we like talking about is uh, history, right? Like, I mean, it's, yeah. it's because I think we're both history buffs in our own way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think we have different approaches to history. Yeah. Um, because I actually thought I was going to be a historian. So, like, um, 
But there wasn't enough math in it. Uh, <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Data history. Well, so if you actually, if you read, uh, uh, you know, Brodel, uh, uh. He's, a, he's a famous French historian, and he writes this treatise, it's called On History, but he writes it in, I think, 1955 or something like that, 1950s. And he talks about, in the future, will, in, in the next, you know, five or ten years, will every uh, historian have to be a computer programmer? Mm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, because I think it's becoming more true now than uh, Prodell was writing. But, uh, so we have, um, so we both like history, I think. Uh, but um, one of the things that came out, and I think it was actually uh, someone like Nate Silver was talking about it, because there were all, there were all these numbers coming in from uh, election results and a- analyzing election results. And one of the things that Nate Silver was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe we should have, maybe the numbers uh, were not as important as we thought we were, they were, but we should maybe paid attention a little bit more to history, right? Like mm-hmm. we, and so we should go. And he, he made sort of a, a soft pledge to go back and read more history, mm-hmm. um, as if there were lessons uh, to be learned from history about our current time. Because uh, one of the problems that we come from, I think, having being data driven, is that we actually are pulling from a very shallow stream of history, right? So when you think about how much history or data a relevant history has been pulled, it's always a shallow pool. Like, it's only 10 or 15 years because that's basically when we started keeping track of all these things in a way that we can continue to keep track of. Right. Um, so uh, so we, we have a very limited time span when we think about lessons we can learn from data, uh, but there are more interesting things to learn from history because it has a longer time span, even though it's not quite as maybe, maybe rigorous or it's not really clear what the lessons are. And obviously, it very much... Uh, informs how you think about politics, and one of the posts I think of you uh, writing is one of my least favorite posts that you ever wrote uh, <laughs> on Facebook. Was that if you if you had to go back, you would unlearn math and learn more history? Yeah, yeah. Um, As a fiction writer, that's you know, it's it's great to steal from it. So obviously, you think it's it's incredibly relevant. So I'd like to have that conversation. But I think it's it's really important, like the stories we tell ourselves, and how we and that really colors politics, right? So like how we think about uh, even the most recent past, like what is going to emerge is this narrative of uh, in this case, let's say wh- why the Democrats lost and why the Republicans won, and it may or may not be entirely true, right? There are a bunch of complicated factors, but what really important what is really important is the stories that. And in this case, let's say there are only two stories, right? The story of uh, because it's a partisan country, but like we will tell different stories about about the election, and that's what forms history, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting, and it's also really interesting to think about how people conceive of themselves um, and their own personal history, and how right. that how that affects how they think about politics and how they think about what kind of policies they advocate or what kind of uh, where they draw the line and especially how they define themselves uh, I think those kind of lessons are being lost I think when you, when you learn about history because it's not just about okay these are dates or events or uh, you know this major thing happened it's also okay well these are uh, low level philosophies that people bought into at the time and yeah. that was what were dri- what, that's what drove the culture right so whether it be a religious revival or um, a basic kind of political philosophy like nationalism of driving how people think, uh, it, it's uh, it's a way that or have, punk, or punk, right? Yeah. Like an aesthetic, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's it is a way that people choose to filter information yeah. um, and make, uh, and it, it, they are the rules of thumb that we make decisions by, right? So I don't, 
Uh, it's the stories that hem in our decision-making process. Yeah, and also just the aesthetic of a book of history is somebody trying to grapple with a, a long chain of events and tell a story out of it. Yeah. Know? It's a thematic apperception test. I love seeing it, people try as much as I love reading a novel. You know? Yeah. And I think a really good work of history has that has like an aesthetic value to it. A historian is also... Uh, a role that I think you have to wear a lot of hats. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. Are, th- those are kind of the jo- the jobs or the occupant. I think those are the roles that I really respect, like where you have to kind of not be a specialist. Like you have to pull and sample yeah. from all sorts of different streams. And once you read enough history, you start to like see that this pr- you can read like, well, this person's very conservative or this person yeah. has like a, is very not, you know? Yeah. Like, and it, it's interesting to see how politi- you know, political philosophies are played out in this like analysis of human events and it's also something like sports i guess mm, that you can talk to people about right and everybody's kind of into it right I, right I, I wonder so i think with sports there are also stories you tell yeah right? yeah yeah absolutely so like I th- so like we don't follow you don't follow sports no anymore. no sports is stupid <laughs> <laughs> so i think with sports also like if you just talk to if you if you're honest about it you're like hey, i don't follow sports why like Tell me about I don't know what are we watching right now? Like what's important about that? Yeah. Like people will start to tell stories, yeah, yeah really yeah. personal stories. Yeah, I mean it's uh, a soap opera. You know? Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. But there is this like real narrative there, yeah. and again, like it comes back to these stories that we tell about. Uh, so history can be a very short term thing, but they're really important, and they're and those are like inspiring stories. Do you have a favorite period that you go back to perennially? I uh, I have a couple of periods that I, I thought were are really interesting, and they're definitely pe- they're things that I wish I knew much more about. I find myself going. That's the other thing. It's infinitely dense. Like yeah. you learn a little bit, and you're like, oh shit, I have to get I have to get yeah. even deeper. Into yeah, this. It's, uh, it's an amazing puzzle. Right. Yeah. I think there, there's just so much to go into. Uh, I find myself in, in the past few years uh, returning to like uh, colonial to early America history, um, American government history. So like somewhere between 1760 and uh, 1820. And I think it's just a really fascinating time. I think it, it sets the tone for our history. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think one of the things I really like about it um, is there are just a number of biographies. And I don't know if I always love a biography. I don't think it's the most important way to study history, but it is an interesting way to study history. And uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, there were just a series of really excellent founding father type biography so like um so there are some famous ones um john adams by dave mccullough which i actually think is is sort of one of the weaker ones but like i think ron chernow writes really excellent biographies there's a wealth of accessible scholarship around that about that era and i think it's really fascinating so um that is definitely something i, I find really interesting um uh in general i like economic history obviously like i think it's super important like it's something that drives humanity in a way that's really invisible. I I think there are forces that we experience that we can't understand, um, so the way that we talk about them um, is we tell these stories, right? So we tell stories that are really, like, they get, they sort of touch on some basic underlying truths, but they don't really describe, they're not talking about demographic changes as much as they're talking about, like, uh, you know the war between peoples, right? But the, you know, like I mean, like demographic changes as people move from one area to another. It's more about okay, well, these people. It's it's all about wars and things like that. But there were probably much more subtle, um, longer standing kind of uh, flows of history. But we tell stories, and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 
I guess I'm not as interested in people as I am in like cities. I think cities are what I'm most fascinated um, by. So I, I like the history of cities and various towns. There's, and there's some good. There are some good biographies about history. Uh, biographies of of cities now. Right, which I think for me. That, that makes the French Revolution really interesting. That the French so Revolution, crazy. because, you know, it's so set in Paris. The French Revolution is so... Yeah. You know, it's one district in Paris, yeah. you know, was you know was the center of the French Revolution. How that district, yeah. uh, you know, saw itself in relation to the entire world. Right. And that pivot, I think, is very fascinating. Because I know how a district in a city works. Yeah. You know, and I can see it around me. And I, imagining that, I think, is very interesting. The way that they use the Cordelier's district in order to take on the entire world and when I guess in yep. some ways. Yep. Change, change history forever <laughs> so uh, I would like to thank everyone for listening this is ep- uh, you can now catch us on reddit we have a subreddit yeah yeah weigh in if you can come up with something for Kamalash to do <laughs> <laughs> that would be great yeah absolutely I'm just going to write stories <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to try to tell him that that's not enough <laughs> uh, thanks again everyone